Welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast with Matthew Eels. I understand you and Asha having some marital problems. Well, we're going on a weekend away. Maybe that will help. We really need to bring the boat. That's a pretty great view. I thought you'd like it. You get the kid, I'll get the parents, and we're off. What the hell is this? Three systems, three servers, three different ISPs. I want you to transfer $10 million into three separate accounts. Do you realize I could do whatever I want to? <laughs> she's here. Don't mess around, she's a trained archer. Shoot to kill. Get back, she is going to punish you both big time. Well, I can get pretty crazy too. That's the trailer for Avarice. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Perth-based filmmaker John V. Soto to discuss Avarice, a neat action thriller starring Gillian Alexi as a gifted Olympic-level archer who must rescue her husband, Luke Ford, and daughter, Taya Heathcote-Marks, after they are abducted during a vicious home invasion. John V. Soto has written and directed five Australian feature films, including the sci-fi drama Alpha Gateway, or The Gateway in Australia, a crime thriller The Reckoning, horror thriller Needle, and supernatural thriller Crush. Avarice was selected for the Montreal Independent Film Festival, where it won Best Thriller, so that gives you an idea of the quality of this film. In this interview, John shares stories about his passion for Perth and why he loves making movies here. He also discusses his beginnings as a filmmaker and what drew him to the craft, and of course, John takes us behind the scenes of Avarice. Avarice is in cinemas from Thursday, 8th of December, and will be screening at Reading Cinemas across the country. Head over to cinemaaustralia.com.au to find out where you can see it. Anyway, enjoy. John, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Good morning, Matthew. How are you going? Very, very good. Hey, um, I interviewed you for your previous film, uh, The Gateway, but it was only an email interview, uh, which is something that I absolutely loathe. Um, I remember <laughs> heading away on holidays at the time and an email interview was the most convenient for me. Uh, I find them to be so impersonal and you can't ask follow-up questions and, and you know, you can't take a deep dive into the making of the film. So I'm really excited to finally get the chance to speak to you in person. Oh, fantastic. Likewise. Um, congratulations on Avarice. Um, this is a tight, entertaining action film that's completely engrossing from beginning to end. And I guess I want to emphasise the word action because, you know, you're not the kind of filmmaker who sticks to one genre, which is what makes you such an exciting filmmaker, in my opinion. 
Um, the film is made for the audience and uh, while watching it, it's obvious that you and your cast and crew were having a great time making it. So congratulations again on this one. Oh, thank you, Ben. I really appreciate that. Uh, we did have a good time making the film. Yeah. Um, but as I have mentioned before in other interviews, it's like um, it's fun, but there's a lot of work. It's hard work. Um, but overall, uh, you know, the cast and crew enjoyed the shoot and uh, and also the post-production process, and, and I'm really happy how it turned out. Yeah, it's certainly something that I've learned over the last 10 years of, of running Cinema Australia is just how hard the actual filmmaking process is. And I guess I never thought that it was easy, but to sit here and listen to filmmakers tell their stories, it's a, it is a really, really difficult thing to do, and I, that's why I admire filmmakers so much. Uh, yeah, it is very difficult to do, and um, it, as I said, it does have its fun moments, um, but I think they generally make up about 10% at the time and other 90 percent is just bloody hard work yeah. and of course we we shot this during uh you know the covid pandemic so that was uh, you know that was quite an experience as well um because uh the you know we were shut down so we we were uh, we'd shot two days we had two days of footage and then we had a shutdown statewide shutdown and we we couldn't shoot any further so everyone had to go home and that, that, you know, that obviously breaks the rhythm, so that's not good from that perspective. But um, it creates for myself, well, credit for myself uh, in particular, and also my uh, fellow uh, producer, Tim uh, Maddox, um, a lot of anxiety because, you know, you don't know. Well, firstly, in, you know, when you're making a film, you have to schedule um, your locations for the shoot, for the duration of the shoot. For, you know, for say, our shoot was four weeks, four very intense weeks, so 20 days. But, um, you know, you've got you to lock down where you're going to shoot um, the locations for those 20 days. And when you have a three-day, when you lose three days at the shoot, you've got to see where you can make those days up. Can you still have those locations? And, uh, you know, and the thing is, on the day four, like day three, they said, right, the shutdown's ended at the end of day three. Day four, it's like, okay, we, we can go to set and everyone had the new schedules and new production schedules. We, and the, my first AD, John Fairhead, who was a literal wizard at this stuff, rescheduled mm -hmm. it beautifully. But overall, Tim and myself, we had uh, this constant anxiety after that of will, you know, when we wake up in the morning, we checked our phones, do we go to set today or not? Mm -hmm. so it was, uh, that was not fun. No. no. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm so grateful that that period has passed us now. Yeah. But there's, I guess, there still is that anxiety. You know, is is something like that going going to happen again in the new year, or you know, over the Christmas period when everyone's traveling and and catching up with family and friends? Well, you know, who knows? It could happen. Um, I think the other thing, uh, you know, we were lucky. So we had the three day shutdown, and we had to do everyday COVID tests and wear masks and all this sort of thing. And not a problem, you know, it was difficult. Um, but we were lucky in terms that we got to finish our film. I know there have been films overseas where they'd never finished because um, cast members got too sick. And there's even one famous film here in Australia where um, I think the barista, they had like a, someone making coffees, a barista making coffees for the crew. That person tested positive and a few other crew members tested positive. So they had a shutdown. And then 
Um, this is the worst thing. This is what could happen to me uh, or to myself and Tim. Um, they were shut down for, I believe, three weeks. And by the time they went back to set, some of the actors' contracts had expired. Their oh, times had expired. Yeah, yeah. They had to go. Mm, what a horror story. Absolute, absolute nightmare for the director. I know the, I know the director and I think he, he would have, was living in a state of anxiety for probably a whole year. Because oh. that's when it, that's when they went back. I think it was nine months later they went back to, to finish the film. Right, right. Um, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about some of the other challenges that you faced while shooting this film. But uh, to begin with, uh, I'd like to go back a little bit to, to get to know you a little bit more. Um, firstly, there's a there's a very well well known film journalist in Perth named Mark Naglazis, who I'm sure you're aware of. Um, yes. Uh, recently on social media, Mark noted how rare it is to see Perth City itself on the big screen. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, geez, Mark doesn't watch enough John Soto films because <laughs> there are probably more shots of Perth in your films than all WA films uh, combined. Uh, um, yeah. it, got me, it got me wondering, did you grow up in Perth? Um, no, I was actually, I, uh, I was born in England. So I was born in, um, near Cambridge in England. And I was there for about ten years, so I was um, went to you know went to school in England up until ten, and then my parents decided to um, uh, immigrate to Australia. Um, so I've got an interesting uh, sort of cultural back background. In that my father um, is uh, ex uh, U.S. Air Force, uh, so he was in the U.S. Air Force in in England. He was working at Lakenheath, and he met my mother there, who's living uh, in. Suffolk or Brandon Suffolk um, and they obviously had a relationship whatever and then um, uh, they got married and had me and then uh, decided uh, to move out to uh, Australia um, and I've been here, been here since I was 10 but I have stayed in Perth the whole time apart from the old holiday yeah. I've pretty much stayed in Perth the whole time and I love Perth I just think yeah. it's the best place in the world. So, so you moved uh, directly to Perth when you came to Australia? You didn't live anywhere else? No, yeah, I moved straight to Perth. Actually, I think the first house we had was, we had like an apartment in uh, Como. <laughs> well, we, lived in, we lived there for about a year before we bought a house in Ball Creek. What are some of your earliest memories of the city? It was actually um, not as big as it is now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's been a lot of growth. The last, you know, the last decade has really taken off uh, some of the buildings I think the BHP building is, was built about a decade ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Perth, uh, you know, was the last. In fact, the last twenty years, it has just um, grown. I won't say exponentially, but it's grown very quickly. But I, I hope it doesn't. It sounds. Yeah. I hope it doesn't grow anymore. I like it as it is. I think it's at its sort of like hopefully at its limit. Uh, we don't want to turn into Sydney or Melbourne. I mean, you know. I love those they're lovely cities too, but I don't like the it's just they they just feel so congested and overpopulated. Yeah, and uh, Perth's often complimented because uh, you know it feels like a, a big country town, really. And uh, yeah. you know, I've lived here for twenty years now, and it's true. Uh, sometimes I can't go into the city or down the uh, down to the shops without running into someone I know, just just like it was when I was living in the country. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the buildings then because uh, I went back and I, I took a look at Crush recently and uh, I'm also very familiar with the other films and you can see Perth growing in those films. You can, you know, <laughs> what, seeing Perth in Crush, it, it almost looks like a, an entirely different city. Yeah, yeah. I Look, I, well, I love Perth, right? And um, 
I, you know, it's, it is particularly the, what where we're lucky is that we've got that beautiful river. So you've got the river, the riverfront, and then you have the city, and it's actually very picturesque. And I like to showcase that uh, in all my films. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing is that um, on, on virtually every film, I've had uh, a distributor uh, say, "Oh, did you shoot this in Canada?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, this isn't Toronto." It's not Montreal. This is Perth mm. and Australia. Oh, really? Um, so uh, I love sh- showcasing Perth. And you are right. Martin Iglesias needs to uh, watch a few of my films. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, The Reckoning was pretty much, um, that was like a showcase for Perth because that's just, yeah. we, we, we were basically shooting, I think every day was a different location and we shot, you know, 25 days of different locations all around Perth. Um and but yeah, Crush itself, um, which I'm you know, very fond of. My, that's my first movie, and that was quite an experience. Um, that film, that film has done uh, really well uh, internationally, um, particularly in the US. But yeah, I should actually get like a grant from the uh, tourism yeah it's true it's true and uh one thing that i love and i really appreciate about your films is that uh, you never mask perth on screen you never disguise it as another city like some films are guilty of doing um and uh, you know i just i, I wonder why is is there obviously you love the city and you do want to showcase it but but is it ever to appease investors or anything like that are you, are you, no, no 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 that's great no, it, it's uh i just like it but look to me it looks cool uh, i think you'll you'll you know you'll agree that at night time it looks really oh, beautiful yes. yeah yeah and that's what i wanted to capture for this film i thought mm-hmm. you know because reckoning was very much during the day and gateway we had a little bit of birth in the background the distance yes. the city but i wanted no let's let's do some shots um let's shoot some footage in perth yeah. along in the streets um, up high above and um it, it is just gorgeous just yeah. so yeah and that's that's why that, that's what i thought would be a nice opening for the movie yeah uh, did you uh, did you study film in perth no 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 i uh i would say my education is uh to quote famous other famous director um, people went to film school and I went to the movies. Yes. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I'm a film, I love films as a teenager. Um, well, as a, um, as a uh, young teenager, like a 13 year old, I was writing short stories and uh, I actually uh, wrote a book uh, when I was like 14. I uh, didn't get published, but it was you know, my first shot at, at writing. Um, and uh, I've always been writing short stories or, or you know, um, yeah, I wrote a lot of short stories in my teenage years and I read um, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands. I pretty much read the entire library. I went to Willowton High School, pretty much read out the entire library. Um, and I was also a total film fanatic. So I was watching um, probably every single night uh, my parents didn't know this, but from from the age of about, because they made the mistake of getting me a small TV, which I had in my room, yeah. and uh, you know I had to, you know it was lights out from back in the day. There lights out at nine thirty, mm-hmm. they would go off, and, and there's some sliding doors <laughs> between my between or doors between my room and their, you know the, the living room. Mm-hmm. So I would just sit up and watch movies sometimes to two in the morning. And, I was, I was, and you'd see some real crackers, a lot of Hammer films, actually, yes. uh, back in the, uh, the 90s, 80s, 
in the 80s, lots of hammer films. Mm -hmm. So I was getting my education there, and um, I just felt like I had stories to tell, and I thought, well, I can write books or I can tell a story with a camera. So that's when I, I initially got into uh, screenwriting. Um, it was actually the, the first book I read was I picked up a screenwriting book um, probably, oh, God, about 20 years ago. I didn't realise that, you know, films were based on scripts. That was a bit of a shock. Having Once I read the book, I thought, hey, I could do this. This is this sounds easy. So, you know, I wrote... Um, I wrote a, uh, a number of scripts which were absolutely atrocious, but you've got to get them out of your system. So I wrote yes, about five, right. just shockers. Mm. Um, and then I wrote a script um, called, it was called Something Evil, which was later had a name change to Prey. And um, the story there is that the it was actually acquired. So I had a, a Melbourne company, you know, bought the script um, and they decided to turn that into a film. And it was actually, Prey was a uh, pretty intense thriller. Um, it's about uh, three couples that, that they're going on a vacation or they're going to go on a holiday um, by the coast and they get uh, tricked into, into taking some back, back routes and they get essentially stranded and lost mm -hmm. in like this semi-desert area. And then and then there's some supernatural um things that go on out there. And it was a really, I felt it was a pretty strong script. Uh, but the producers, the director they hired, um, uh, he decided he didn't like that that supernatural element and the thriller element. He wanted to, wanted to make a horror film. So he rewrote the script, completely rewrote it. And he'd actually, because uh, I met him and, and he was a big fan of um, Evil Dead, and and he tried to do like an Australian Evil Dead, but it was he he, he wasn't a horror director. He was very much not that you know he was not a horror director. And when I rocked up to because I as a writer I was invited. I had no idea this was going on. Yeah. I was invited to set one day, and I rocked up. And I was so excited, and then I saw this uh, man in a loincloth dancing around this fire, and I'm like, that's not in my script. <laughs> What the hell? And there was, he added all this, and then he added snakes. He had these giant snakes in there. And then, and then the heroine had a, uh, with Natalie Bathingwaite, she had like a, suddenly had a chainsaw and running around with a chainsaw. And I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is not my script. What, this is an absolute, looks terrible. And it didn't turn out very well. So once that happened, I, I basically, you know, sculpted back to Perth and, um, it was a bit, um, despondent about how badly that turned out and i and i decided the next film uh, i'm going to direct it and um, that's where i decided um, i was going to direct crush Fantastic. yeah and that's a that's a great segue into my next question actually but before i do ask that i love hearing those stories about filmmakers you know not uh, formally studying film um, because really watching movies is the best best way to learn, I, I feel. Um, so I do want to ask you a bit about Crush. Uh, I watched it yesterday, actually, before this interview, because I wanted to go oh. back, back to the beginning. Um, okay. Actually, the only film of yours that I haven't seen is Needle, because it's just so hard to find in Australia. I, I literally <laughs> can't find it anywhere to rent or buy other yeah. than on Fetch, which I don't have, and I actually don't know many people who do. 
But, um, <laughs> I really am looking forward to seeing it one day because I, I do hear good things about it. Um, but uh, so going into Crush, how would you describe yourself as a filmmaker uh, going into that all the way back then? Um, oh, one little thing I did, I have done study in terms of, I did a screenwriting course at Afters. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I did a, they, had, they have a, um, a short course, uh, which is four months and very intense. I mean, you basically do, you know, you, you write a script over four months and you're working with a, um, you know, a professional. Film professional and and oh that was, was I highly 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 recommend the afters uh, screenwriting courses in particular the short course. By that point though, I had read probably you know absorbed about ten or fifteen screenwriting books, so I yes. kind of knew what I was doing, but it definitely helped me with structure and um, was yeah must like a I strongly suggest that all screenwriters to do that. Those that have not yet um, got a film up. Okay, so uh, go so crush. So with crush, um, I had uh, I've got a friend uh, Jeff Gerritsen, and he would shoot commercial videos. He would shoot adverts and training videos for corporations, and I felt um, that uh, I probably because I've never directed a film before. Um, before we do anything, let's make a short film. So we shot a film called Repulsion. And Repulsion was essentially, it was like a scaled down uh, crush. That was actually used as the uh, kind of like testing ground. Because right. uh, if it turned out to be a complete complete pile of rubbish, then I would have said, okay, forget the directing, let's just, I'll go do pottery or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, no, it actually turned out really good. So it was a nice little short. Uh, yeah, considering, I mean, we shot it for like nothing. I mean, we shot it for like a thousand dollars, and but it but it worked. It told it told it got the story across, and I, and at the same time, you know, we were using that time. We were trying to remember what camera we were shooting on. I think we were just shooting on like a commercial camera, but we had lighting. We had um, we did some visual effects or some some, some prosthetic or practical effects, and we had to cast the actors. And there was a lot. You know, it was it was like that's why I think shooting a short is a good is a great learning experience a wonderful learning experience and you should do lots of them and i did after that and still before crush i went out and just i just got my video camera i just practiced um shooting um people walking or shooting uh landscapes um or following a car and and then reading up on um uh the process of directing and uh, also, again, uh, watching um, some some great films, um, and and then uh, you know discussing it with um, my co-director Jeff, and he loved the script. Crush the script was very strong, I felt, and we decided, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's aim to make this film. And then we had some uh, investors that came on board. They they um, watched the short and they thought it was good. They could see the potential. And also back then, that was the days of the wonderful 10BA section of the Tax Act where you got a deduction for investing in a film. So, you know, you put in $50,000, you got a $50,000 tax deduction in your tax return. And for, and back then, I think the tax rate was 48%. So you got half your money back from, in a refund straight away. So it wasn't... 
I um, for, it, for it, it wasn't that hard to sell because I, there was there were people that they just had there were some investors that just had um, you know a lot had earned a lot of money and that yeah and they wanted to reduce their tax so that's how we got that one up. It was a low budget though, so it was only one point five. Yeah, uh, and we raised that money over a number of months or about a year, put everything together, and then we started building our crew. Um, and then I hired uh, Michael Franda as first AD, and he started doing the schedule. And and it was it was essentially for me that was like doing a uh, that was my film school. That was like uh, you know that was like my PhD in film school because you learn so much. And yeah, and Crush has uh, as I said, it was very, very successful in America. It also sold all around the world. So. Again, I was making films that I was I was just into genre films. So I love um, thrillers, horror films, action, sci-fi. That's that's the zone I like to play in. Uh, have you seen Crush recently? Have you, have you watched it again? Do you, do you reflect on on your previous films? Um, I did watch. Uh, funny enough, I did watch Crush recently, um, and there are things about it I would improve. But uh, I was also lucky to secure the services of a certain Jason Ballantyne, um, who also taught me a lot uh, about film. Jason obviously edited Wolf Creek. Um, he also edited, um, you may have known one of his films called It, you know, It and It Too. So he edited yes. those ones. So, I, you know, he was great uh, to work with because our process was we would, we would, um, in terms of this, the, the duties, it was like Jeff handled the crew and I focused on the actors because Jeff obviously had the technical knowledge in terms of you know, the lighting, camera placement, stuff like that, and I was really just focused on the performances. Right. That's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, my, you know, my process, I, again, you learn a lot. I was lucky that I got some really good actors. So, you know, Chris was very solid. Emma Lung, I mean, what a performance. Yeah. Just she knocked it out of the park. She was amazing. Um, and uh, overall, um, the film, like watching it recently, the film still holds up. You know, as I mentioned it, it was successful in the US and it actually was, uh, I know in America, and again, you learn these things, right? So in the US, um, we got, there was a company called Phase 4 in, in the US and to say we were screwed over, that would be like putting it mildly. Uh, what uh, I won't go into details, but just know that we had like we probably had revenue. The film had about revenue of about over half a million in the US, yeah. mm -hmm. and I think the amount they ended up sending us was about twenty grand. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that was yeah, that was just not reading the fine print and trusting uh, trusting the, uh, the distributor. Yeah, and there's um, a good lesson there uh, to other filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> read the fine yeah. print. Yeah, and it was it was an innocuous. I'll tell you what it was. It's a little innocuous thing where it said um, uh, it was thirty percent uh, profit share if the uh, if the item, the DVD or home entertainment amount per item was over ten dollars, mm -hmm. and five percent if it was below, yeah. and and so the film was rolled out and it sold. I think in the first month it sold thirty thousand DVDs. Yeah. Went nuts. Yeah. Um, and they were sold at $9.99. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we learned. If there had been one more cent, or no, 
two more cents, then it would have been a different story. But you learn these things, yeah. yeah. So you learn, you learn, you learn from that. But why um, do you think uh, Crush was more um, uh, successful in the US than Australia? Oh no, Crush actually did really well in Australia too. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Crush sold in Australia. I think we shipped ten thousand DVDs. Wow. Um, so the Horizon one, they did an amazing job pushing yeah. the film. Uh, the film only had like a li- very limited. It went out one screen. It had a very limited release, but it, it did did really well yeah. on home entertainment. And the yeah. investors are very very happy. So it did really extremely well in Australia. Um, and I mean, you know, but we, when was this? So Crush went out in two thousand nine. So it's like uh, 13, 14 years ago. Wow. Um, wow. And the, the markers changed. So back back then. Uh, DVDs and Blu-rays um, was a highly profitable yes. business. Yeah, it yeah. was the backbone, and there was you know, and I, I've actually got photos of the film uh, at all the blockbuster stores, all the various video stores, uh, whole rows of crushed DVDs in Australia, just whole, just whole like a whole wall of just crushed DVDs, and they're all out. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, awesome. it, it, it did really well, and that kind of yeah. and and from that, I was like. Um, yeah, I I think maybe I I, I I do I am able to make films and direct, yeah. and I should maybe continue this. So that was uh, that kicked me off. I'm really glad that you did. Uh, in my intro, I mentioned that uh, throughout your filmmaking career, you've explored heaps of genres from supernatural to horror to crime thriller to sci-fi, and now action is exploring something different. Uh, you know, each time something that you want to do going forward. <laughs> Yes, I, I mean they, there is one common thread with all my films, mm. and that is that they're they're thriller. Yes. So it's either supernatural thriller, horror thriller, yes, uh, crime thriller, um, sci-fi thriller, or action thriller. Yeah. <laughs> so so I like to keep the audience guessing and kind of keep the audience on their toes. Um, I like to I, I I like to have some interesting plotting so that so it keeps the audience engaged in the story and what's going on. Um, I did it, it is stripped back in um, uh, it's interesting yeah it, it's interesting that in an action thriller um, you strip you definitely have to strip back the story because you know you don't want to have people just talking for 20 minutes you have to have things happening um, in in an action film and that was uh, so probably a bit, little bit less plotting in Avarice um, than there was in Gateway which is quite combo- a little bit I would say convoluted, but it was, it was tricky to follow. Um, but uh, I do like, yeah, I do like working in different genres. Um, I, I am, I do love supernatural thrillers. That is, that is something I really love. Uh, so supernatural uh, thrillers, uh, because it can go anywhere. That's the thing with supernatural thrillers. Um, but I, from making Avarice, I like action as well. Um, and uh, it is each. Each genre, so the main thing for me, I don't want to be typecast as, it's not, I mean, it's just, I think it's a subconscious thing. I don't want to be known as, oh, that's the guy that makes horror films. I don't want to be that guy. I want to kind of be the guy, oh, he can do action, he can do this, he can do mystery or thriller. Kind of be flexible with it. Yeah, well, you've certainly proved yourself with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, so, so tell us about the origins of Avarice. How did this one come about? So Avarice, I was actually in the promotional side for Gateway. In I was in Sydney 
that I met up with a couple of riders, uh, Dane Millard and Adam Enslow. Um, they'd watched my film. They love Gateway, and, we were, and they wanted to catch up for a coffee. And I was there, I was I was there for a day, and I thought, oh, why not catch up with them? And we sat down, and we just basically just talked about movies, a love of movies, and and, um, and I was like, well, maybe we should do something together. And then um, I think it was Ad, so I think it was Dane said, we, what about, have you thought about home, a home invasion film? I thought said to him, well, not really, because it's been done to death, and the films that have been the home invasion films that have been made are very, you know, they're, they're very strong. They're really good, you know, like The Strangers, um, Panic Room, The Purge, Firewall, uh, Funny Game. So there, there is, that, that, it's a genre that's been done. And, it's, and I said to him, I'd only look at that if we can bring something fresh. We kept in contact and um, lots of calls, um, Zoom calls, because um, I was, you know, they were exploring it and I was exploring it. And I said, and I actually came up with the idea of a reverse, I call it a reversal in the home in, in the home invasion, where um, we have our, I won't give away too much here, but where the, where mm. we have the hero, normally in the home invasion movie, you have the bad guys come in, they take, they take, you know, they take the family hostage or whatever, and all sorts of things happen, and, but you're kind of stuck in the house. And I thought, well, what if, what if the, the hero turns the tables and the bad guys kind of retreat to their lair and that hero goes after them in their lair and takes them out in their so it's like they have a home invasion and flip it and they're like oh that's really cool and so then we that was kind of the, the genesis of it and then um i wrote the first outline of their story and then with that bounced back and forth and, and adam and dane made suggestions and changes and things like that um, and around that time, we brought, uh, like I, I met with Tim Maddox at uh, 37 South uh, and um, pitched the idea to, to Tim, and he, he loved it. He's like, oh, I want to be involved in this. Um, so, so then we, 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 he thought, well, you know, obviously, um, where's the script? So I wrote the first draft, the script, and then um, and Dane wrote a draft and Adam wrote a draft. And we reached a point where it was like, it's pretty good, but it's it, it's just it's just not there. So we and I said, look, I think we need fresh eyes. So that's when we brought in um, a writer called Adam. Sorry, called Andrew Slattery. Yes. And and because Andrew had had nothing to do with this at, at all, um, he did come in with fresh eyes and did point out a few little logic issues here and there, and did point make some suggestions on how he thought it can we can make it better. And I was like. Yes, I love it. It's like this is the one thing, um, and I think it's like a good lesson for writers. Like you've got to, you've got to be flexible. Don't stick to your ideas, because if you can, if someone offers an improvement, you should go with it. Make the story as good as you can before you shoot it. So anyway, he wrote a draft, which is um, elevated the material, and Tim loved it. Um, and then uh, we did a, I did another another draft. Um, and then uh, Tim uh, started uh, reaching out to several sales agents and started pitching it. And then we got epic pitches on board. And then away we went. What what made you settle on archery as a specialised skill for for your main character, Kate? That's a great one. Um, yeah. So uh, okay. So um, I have noticed. I have seen a few of these. Uh, female-led action film so we did decide early on that we wanted the mother to be the the, the protagonist the hero 
um, and uh, rather than, you know, because quite often in these home invasion films, it's the father that saved the day and the father does this. And the father, it's like, well, hang on, come on, change it up. Make it different. Okay, so it's a woman. So it's a female takes charge. You know, okay, it's been done before in Panic Room, but most um, most home invasion movies is the guy that, that ends up being the hero. So let's, so we're the female protagonist. And I had seen, at that point, I'd seen quite a few of these action films featuring uh, Hollywood, female Hollywood actors who probably weigh about 45 kilos um, and are about five feet tall, taking on armies of bad guys and doing backflips and, and bouncing everywhere and then machine guns and taking out battalions of guys. And, it's, and I said, oh, God, it's so unrealistic. It's just not realistic. Um, what if, instead of that, what if we had like an ordinary mum and she's got one skill and that skill enables her um, to even the odds just a little bit. And then the issue was, and that they all loved that, everyone liked that idea. And then it was like, well, what is the skill? So we went through every, like, we, which, you know, initially it was like, well, she's really good with knives. Like she's, she can throw knives. But then it's like, well, why is she a knife thrower? This is ridiculous. Okay. All right. Well, no, she's, she's done studied martial arts, she's into nunchucks. Yeah, okay, well, that's, yeah, that sounds cool, but martial arts have been done to death. All right, what about if she's, uh, what if she's, I mean, we, you know, even, even to the point we think of blow darts, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so you run through all your crazy ideas. You do, you do your brainstorming with your group, and eventually it's like, well, one thing we haven't seen in a home invasion is a female, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a mum who's good with archery, who's good mm-hmm. with bow and arrow. And that's where we decided, yeah, let's make her an archer. But I said, I don't want to be doing the Hawkeye archery where she fires an arrow and it sort of goes up into the roof, flies along the roof, bounces off a vase and then goes through three bad guys. <laughs> yes. None of the Hawkeye archery. We wanted real archery. Like you draw the arrow and, and, and you know, and, and let's make it more complicated for her. She's got to, she's got to build her bow. She's got because because uh, archers... <coughs> Excuse me. Archers don't walk around with the bow slung over their shoulder, you know, casually walking. They don't. The bow is disassembled after a competition. They take it apart, and, and yes. it's um, it's a number of parts. And uh, I wanted that to be something that she uh, does, so we make it realistic. And we had consulting archers on it, were professional. We had world champion and Olympic level archers consulting on the film, working with Gillian teaching her how to shoot a bow and arrow. Um, And, you know, she did weeks and weeks and weeks of training. And by the end, she was hitting bullseye. So she actually has a natural affinity to it. Um, So that made it feel a lot more real. Um, And that's, yeah, so ultimately that's why we decided on the the bow and arrow. And it's, it's, and in the film, everything you see uh, can happen. Yes. It's not fantastical. Yeah, and it works so well. I want to see more bow and arrows in uh, as weapons in film. Um, it, it's just the perfect weapon for for Gillian's character. Um, yeah, thank you. I imagine that most of the the weapons featured in the film were prop weapons. No, they were real. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. The bad guys' guns—they're not real guns. Yes, obviously. They are. Yeah. Obviously, no way would we want to go down the path. You know, what happened in the US, and I've never had a real gun on any of my sets ever. That's just nonsense. Uh, they're either plastic or rubber or whatever. They're not real. Um, they look real. Um, the the um, uh, 
bow is real. All the bows in the film are real. Wow. Um, the arrows and the bows on set shooting in the archery field are real. So we had everyone had to get back and she was shooting like she was just down at Whiteman Park shooting in a competition for real. That was real. But inside the house and when there are actors involved, no, those are special arrows that you could uh, fire point blank at someone and they will just disintegrate. They're actually made of paper. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our, we had our prop people, prop guys, uh, prop team, that's uh, Monique Boisjean, um, design and build these arrows, and um, yeah, no, they can't hurt you. So, how did the uh, cast and crew stop themselves from laughing when they're hit with a, a paper arrow? Yeah, well, they're you know that's they're actors, right? So they have yeah. to pretend. <laughs> it's about pretending. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now we there's obviously a few cheat shots in there, and there's there's actually one shot where um, the, yeah the arrow the, I mean the arrow did did fly across. It didn't like just the arrow didn't just drop on the floor after a meter. I mean it, yeah. it actually yeah. flew. But it was, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a steel arrow, which will cause a lot of damage. No, and, and so, yeah, safety was paramount. We had a safety officer on set the whole time, um, and and I, in fact, it was only when we were starting pre-production that um, um, John, the first AD, said to me, he said, "So, how are you going to do these arrows then? Like, they're quite dangerous." And I'm like, I remember looking at him, going. He's got a good point. They are dangerous. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was luckily the um, production designer, Monique, came to the rescue with her uh, fake arrows. Uh, yeah. And, so cool. Uh, they, they look fantastic. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, was there a big uh, stunt crew on set for this one or did, or did most of the actors uh, handle it themselves? Oh, no, we had um, uh, stuntman. We had Peter West. Uh, Peter's worked in stunts for 40 years. And every stunt is basically, uh, he was there and all the actors rehearsed the stunts um, like a lot. And, and again, I don't want anyone getting hurt. I don't want yeah. anyone, you know, this, we're making a film and we're meant to be having, you know, meant to be safe and to a degree have a bit of fun with it. Um, so, yeah, we had to do lots of rehearsals. Um, and, but it was interesting because, you know, I, you know, Gillian, you know, is a very you know, gentle and kind and, and like all the actors, they're gentle and kind and sweet. But for, and also, so is Alexandra Nell. So for her, it was a real challenge to turn into this um, nasty piece of work, Reed. Um, but when, you know, when they're rehearsing, they started to really get into it and they wanted it to be authentic. Um, so uh, like the fighting in the forest, um, which I won't give away too much, but there's a bit of a fight in the forest. Um, that was that we rehearsed that for for a couple of days uh, before we shot it, and um, yeah, they they uh, were up for it. So we had a stuntman, Peter West, uh, and who was there, and also I worked with Dave LeMay to make sure we captured it. We shot with two cameras on this, and we shot all the stunts were shot with two cameras to make sure. We, in fact, sometimes three cameras to make sure we captured everything. I just love hearing these stories. It's fantastic. Um, did you <laughs> did you have a try at, at archery yourself? Yeah, I have had had a archery one archery lesson. Yeah. Um, well before this, actually, oh, yeah. um, I actually had a shot at I actually um, had a shot at archery. I went down south to some festival with with my family, and I I shot a few arrows, and I thought, oh gee, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's quite 
it is actually quite dangerous. So that that string that you pull, well, it's like a you know, steel, not a steel core, but it's a, it's a, I don't even say it's a string, it's like a wire that you pull back, flexible wire you pull back and you let loose. Um, when you're holding the bow, if you don't hold it correctly, that string will um, really hurt your forearm. Like it is like being whacked with a whip on your forearm. Yeah. So that's why they wear those protective things on their on their forearms. Um, and uh, Jillian, in her training, and I wasn't aware of this. Like, I, so when I did a little practice down south, I got I felt a little sting there. No big dramas. I, I kind of held it right. But Jillian, with the two weeks of training, she came in and we were doing some rehearsals and discussing the script. And I and and she and she pulled up her sleeve because she she was just like she pulled up her sleeves and black and blue on her forearm. And I'm like, what the hell? What's that? And she goes, well, that's the string from the bow. Unreal. Yeah. And so she had that and and she had incredibly sore uh, shoulders and arms because it's very physical. The When you pull that back, remember, the bow is, is aluminium. It, you know, it's rigid. Uh, and then you pull it, pull back. There's an enormous amount of force, huge amount yeah. of force. Yeah. You're pulling back. You let that arrow go. And when that string flies along, yeah, it does – well, firstly, there's a lot of strength, and and again, holding up the uh, bow and shooting, um, and aiming—it's not like you do it in one second. You, you're there. <laughs> it's quite a bit of time, yeah. Yeah, and if you, if you I challenge anyone, go get a one or two kilo weight and hold it out straight, and see how many minutes you last holding it out straight. It's yeah. very few. So anyway, she was a trooper. She she got through all the training and the. The proof's in the pudding, like it looks real and on screen. It really does, and uh, it's it's so good to hear that Gillian threw herself into this because, yeah, as you said, it does it does come through on screen. Um, uh, casting is one of your strong points as a filmmaker. You've worked with some great actors throughout your career, like uh, Chris Egan, Ben Mendelsohn, or Mendo yes. as we call him, yeah. uh, Luke Hemsworth, Jonathan LaPaglia, Jacqueline McKenzie, and so many others. Um, here you work with Gillian and the great Luke Ford. Did you write with a cast in mind for these characters? Do you know who you're going to go after from the get-go, or, or is there a process there for you? Uh, no, like uh, one thing I don't do is write with an actor in mind. Yeah. Um, you may have read that in, you may read that in some screenwriting books and they go, oh yes, make sure you think of, you know, an, an actor you'd like to have for the script and you send it to them and they'll read it and they'll say, I want to do this script. And it's like, it doesn't work like that. Mm. You go write a script with Brad Pitt in mind, I guarantee you, he's not going to pick up your script. He will not do your script. So no, I don't, I don't do that. What I do is I, um, I imagine the characters um and in this case it was a joint effort obviously there's four writers but um you know in the in, in this before pre-production which i call pre-pre-production um thinking of who i'd like and and who would who would be good for the role it's more which actor will best fit the role mm-hmm. rather than uh, there's the actor and let's make build the role around them so so definitely it's uh it's all in the casting and um, you know, Australian actors—they um, are—we um, have some of the best actors in the world. Top, just, top quality. Just amazing, considering mm-hmm. how small our country is, our population, overall population, and, and the number of actors we have compared to like the US, where they've got probably a million actors. Um, and uh, our, our quality of our actors is great, and. 
the key is, you know, to get an actor, you've got, you've got to uh, send something to the agent that the agent believes, because the agent will always read it. They always, the gatekeepers, they'll read the material and then they can go, oh, I can see this would be really good for Luke. And then they'll send it to the, the, the actor yeah. who then, they've got to like it. If they don't like it, they won't be a part of it. So um, I've always tried to make the scripts, the characters as interesting and cool as possible. Um, knowing that, that that actors will go, or they'll, they'll, they should respond to it. So I do write it to attract actors, but not specific actors. Yes, yeah. Oh, that, that's a great answer. Um, uh, I want to ask you a bit about Luke. Uh, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Luke recently, and not only is he a great actor, he's a terrific guy. And yeah. um, and for the listeners out there, uh, Luke also teaches a unique acting method called uh, the Sanford Meister uh, technique. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering uh, what he brought to this role as an actor that you may not have experienced with other actors before. Okay, so Luke is um, firstly highly experienced and you know, his, one of his roles, early roles, was Animal Kingdom, which is mm. an absolute masterpiece. Um, I've seen that many times. I did not audition Luke. So I auditioned pretty much everyone except Gillian and uh, and Luke. Wow! Because yeah, because it's like it's almost an insult. You can't send someone like Gillian, who's done sixty episodes <laughs> of TV and has worked with some of the best actors in the world. Oh, can you audition for my Little Perth film? I mean, come on, they'll just say <laughs> get out of here. And Luke is the same. So I knew you know they're you know they're great from their from their past films. Um, so I didn't really know how uh, what he would bring until we did the table read. Um, so we did a table read really early on, well before the uh, shoot, probably about three or oh, two, three weeks before the shoot. And oh my god, it was like it just came to life. And his character, he brought a uh, a real depth uh, depth to the character. Because obviously, you know, um, in the story, I can't, again, I can't give away too much, but you know, he he has been having an or is having an affair, um, which is part of the marital issues that, mm-hmm. that the protagonist has. And at the same time, um, he's uh, trying to reconcile with with his wife, and he's trying to be a good father to his daughter. And the family unit is fracturing basically falling apart and that's why they go to the this this remote house is that it's to sort of get the bring the family back together uh and um, you know then the home invasion happens which throws it you know that all goes out the door but um yeah he he brought a real depth to the character and um he's a funny guy like so he's funny and also he will um he'll make you know suggestions um, like there's one scene where um, oh, I, can't, I can't be careful how I say this, but I want to give it give anything away. But essentially, there's a scene where I said, "Oh, your character should say this," and he's like, "No, no, no, I'll, I'll, I don't, I don't think I need to say that because I'll act it." I said, "Okay, I'm very like again, I'm flexible with the actors. I've learned a lot working with all these actors. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't give actors too many adjustments." Don't ask them to change this and change that and change that because there's too much. It's over, just it's too much for them. Maybe one little adjustment, but you can't give them three. Anyway, with Luke, very little adjustment required, but more um, uh, making sure everyone's in the correct uh, emotional state for the scene. 
Um, but yeah, on this particular line that he was uh, that I that he was meant to say, I, I said, "Let's shoot it without it. Let's see what you can do." And it's like, "Oh my God, he's right. I, he didn't need that line. He acted it. It's hard to explain." But um, I'll tell you maybe after the interview. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah so with the actors, it's um, you've got to give them. Um, you've, you've got to obviously sit down with them and tell, explain the backstory of the characters, which we did before rehearsals. Then you have the rehearsals. They got all the actors to work together in rehearsals. Um, and also as the director, this is why I believe, I believe it's good as the director to write a draft or two drafts or be in, or have written a script because you know those characters so well mm. um, versus you come in cold and given a script, you pick up a script and you go, oh, I'm going to direct this. You really, and you maybe you've read it three times, but you really don't know the story. Mm. You haven't created it. You don't know the characters. So then the actor asks you, well, what's my backstory? Where, where, where was I born? Where did I, uh, like, did I, did I live in this area? Have I, have I come from, I originally work in Melbourne? Did I, so you have to have all the answers for that. So you find the actors will ask that. Um, but yeah, uh, Luke um, brings uh, he brings a depth to his character that is it's a subtle depth, but it's there. You'll see it in the performance. Yeah, and um, in my opinion, Luke is certainly one of, if not the best actor working in Australia today. Um, I've got a couple more questions here for you because I know that you do have another uh, interview this morning. Um, I, I can't imagine that you're the kind of guy just to stop now and, and take a break. Are you ready to jump back in, uh, jump straight yeah, into sure. your next film? Or? I have a supernatural thriller that I've been working on and um, it's actually been in development for eight years. Uh, and there was one element of the uh, script that one key, a very scary element of the script that was kind of unresolved and uh, I, I kind of, myself, my co-writer, cracked it early this year, finally cracked it, and now we've got something that is like, it'll very scary and all, yeah, I can't give away too much. But, yeah, I hope to get that up next year. Um, that's a supernatural show, or sorry, a film. And I have a uh, TV series, um, which is like a, uh, it's a, it's like a four or four episode, uh, like murder mystery series. Uh, I can't, I don't, again, I don't want to give away too much, but it's really cool. A lot of fun. And um, hopefully that one gets up next year. But, you know, for me, it's, um, uh, you've got to have, you just can't, as a writer, and director, you can't just have one project and rest all your hopes on the one project. You've got to have about at least three, three projects. Yeah. I mean, I've written about 24 scripts now. Um, and I'm constantly writing and coming up with new ideas. So for creatives out there, particularly screenwriters, um, don't get fixated on one script. Write another one and another one. Have at least three. Very, very good advice. And it's it, that's exciting to hear that you'll be going back to your supernatural roots. Um, yes. Yeah, very exciting. Um, I've got one final question here for you, uh, which I uh, end this podcast with uh, each episode. Um, have you seen any Australian films lately that have stood out for you that you've really loved? I know that you attended Cine Fest Oz recently. You might have caught something there. Uh, two films, uh, one in particular, um, I've seen lots of films. I mean, I was watching films constantly, but the, the one film that I saw recently, um, which I love, is The Dry. Yes. So, um, 
it's like uh, Rob Connolly. Every film he does, he just gets better and better and better and better. And that was an absolute cracker. So, um, and I've watched it a few times. And yeah, he's what a magnificent film. Um, yeah, so there's the, the dry. Um, I also saw Elvis recently as well. And Baz is in a different different kind of playground to basically the rest of the Australian directors. He's yes. in the stratosphere. Uh, make you know hundred two hundred million dollar hundred million dollar plus film. So, um, but you know even those can go wrong. Um, but no, he he certainly uh, delivered on on Elvis. Um, John, thank you very much for jo- taking the time to join the Cinema Australia podcast. It's been great chatting with you and to learn about the making of this film and, and to hear stories about your previous films as well. I look forward to everything that you do because, as I said before, I think that you're a very exciting filmmaker. Uh, so thank you again for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Wonderful. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for having me. And um, thanks for the shout-out for the movie. Thanks for listening. Find all the latest Australian film news at cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can follow Cinema Australia on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok.